Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Basu and Godin Notebook. I am Marc-Antoine Godin alongside Arpin Basu, live from Vegas. <laughs> live from Vegas, live from T-Mobile Arena. You might hear the Zamboni in the background, but we're recording this prior to the Canadian's morning skate on Monday, October 30th, one day prior to Halloween. Um, and it's, it's the mailbag edition. And so, you know, this is why this is our listeners and viewers are, are so in touch. We had, we had a, we had a number of topics that we wanted to discuss. Several of them came up in mailbag questions. So rather than have a preamble of what we're talking about and then do the mailbag, we're just going to do a whole mailbag episode because yeah. all these topics are great topics, they're great questions, they're things we want to talk about anyway, so let's just dive right into it. That's it. So basically, our listeners decide the content of our podcast. I love it. All right, so <laughs> let's get right into it. Uh, we're recording this just before the Montreal Canadiens um, morning skate, uh, and we're on the eve of Halloween night, October 30th. All right, let's get this underway. Tom Law wrote to us on our Basu and Godin uh, Gmail address, so Basu and Godin at gmail.com. And Tom was asking us, when watching the Canadians defending in their own zone, uh, I find that we see them too often running around, having difficulty killing plays and spending two-minute shifts in their zone. I'd like to get some insight into what type of defensive system they're using, zone versus <coughs> man-to-man, and what kind of job you think Stefan Rabida is doing mostly in terms of team defense, because I know his priority is probably individual development. So thanks, Tom. It's an interesting question because the Montreal Canadiens have had so far a, uh, a surprisingly uh, good start to their season in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, uh, wins and losses. And in, to that extent, I mean, you, you, you could wonder if their defensive play uh, makes it uh, any... You know any indication of what 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 are things to come? I mean, they're they're five two and one, but uh, they've been giving plenty of shots. Uh, luckily, they've given only twenty seven uh, goals in their first eight games. But uh, Arpin, we had the chance to discuss with Stefan Rabida uh, yesterday on Sunday. Um, so, and he you asked him about about that about their uh, their defensive system, and Stefan seemed actually quite happy. Uh, and contrary to what Tom seems to suggest, Stefan didn't seem to think that the Canadians were spending a whole lot of time in their D zone, uh, at least w in, in the flow of the play five on five. No, so so to answer the, to answer the question, what the Canadians play is neither man or man nor zone. It's kind of a hybrid of the two. If you if you're familiar with basketball, it'd be it'd be akin to a matchup zone in basketball. So basically, they play they play man to man. But they have situations where they switch. They have situations where they uh, they kind of shift into a somewhat of a zone system, uh, which requires a lot of communication. It requires a lot of um, reads by people. And so at times you'll see a defenseman follow his man all the way up to the blue line. At times he'll hand that guy off to a forward and take the forward's man. It really depends on the situation. So you can't, you can't label it one way or the other. Um, and yeah, Rabi does seem to suggest that a big reason for the shots on goal numbers was uh, all the penalties they're taking, and a lot of them came off of rush opportunities, um, off turnovers in the offensive zone, which is him sort of um, 
you know, low key throwing shade at the forward group <laughs> that, that his defense has to deal with. But, um, and, and, you know, I think to some extent that's probably correct because even off those rush opportunities, if they result in offensive zone possession, it can take some time for, um, for the defense to kind of get set and whatever. But he feels that his, the defensive zone play, once the other team is installed in their end, has been good. Um, yeah. I, I don't, you know, I don't think the question is invalid because I, I, I too feel that there are many shifts where the Canadians are trying to contain. You know, they're not, they're not killing plays and they're not getting out of their end. They're just containing. But Stefan's answer suggests to me that that's kind of the plan. Keep them to the outside. If we have to do that for a while, then so be it. But it's, you know, if you do it for too long, you get tired and then you give up opportunities. So just on top of that, um, numbers-wise, it doesn't look very good in terms of their defensive zone play so far. I mean, if you just go by very basic metrics off natural stat trick at five on five, uh, in terms of shot attempts against per 60 minutes of, of play at five on five, they are, they give up seventh most in the NHL right now mm-hmm. at um, just ahead of Anaheim and just, or just, just slightly less than Seattle and slightly more than Anaheim. Uh, in terms of expected goals allowed per 60, they give up the third most at 5-on-5, five five, uh, just behind San Jose and Ottawa. And so it's early. This is still small sample size time. But I think this gives some credibility to uh, what Tom is witnessing because in terms of goals against, not expected goals, but actual goals against per 60 at 5-on-5, five five, the Canadians are first in the league. Better than the Bruins, so yeah. there's 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 a market correction that's probably coming there at some point. There's the, the results mm-hmm. are 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 outweighing or outperforming some of the metrics. Uh, they also have the best five on five save percentage in the NHL. Uh, they are the top or second in PDO at five on five. PDO being adding shooting percentage and saving percentage. And save saving percent save percentage. Uh, they're second in the league. So a lot of what we're seeing heading into the Vegas game uh, is somewhat of a mirage. This should this should change. They've also played a very easy schedule, home heavy. Uh, not a lot of very competitive teams. Um, that's going to change soon, but um, most notably tonight in Vegas. But uh, so yeah, so the defensive zone—that's the scheme. I think Steph's answer to the question was largely based on the record and the goals against, uh, but some of the underlying numbers suggest that there's some improvements that could be made uh, defensively for sure. And if I may add one more stat to this, um, in terms of shots against per 60 minutes, the Canadians are second in the league also, and that's all strengths combined so you end up with a team that gives up a lot uh it is true that the uh, the 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 um the turnovers that they commit and the chances they they give the opponents because of that have been a factor i mean that's why martin saint louis lost his patience after the first period the other night uh because he thought 
that the, the Canadians were were not tight enough and were not focused enough in their putt management. Um, but for the most part, you say that it's largely thanks thanks to the the goalies that the Canadians have been able to um, you know keep their their head above water. And you could argue that Jake Allen has been the MVP of that team for the first month of the season, even though there's three goalies on the roster uh, and he has not necessarily played a tons of games, those that he played, uh, he's been a difference maker. And it's night and day with what we've seen from, from Allen uh, in the past, uh, well, last season. I mean, a, and a healthy and training, Jake and Allen. in training camp. Yes. Well, in training camp, I, to me, it goes back to the fact that with only six games to, you know, it, this year in preseason, trying to fit playing time for Dobesh, a full game to Primo, uh, it was just not enough for Allen and, and Montembeau to really find their rhythm. They had, mm-hmm. you know, if you wanted those two guys to be ready, I'm not sure if they had enough uh, playing time to uh, find their rhythm. But anyway, the season started and, and Allen was, was, was there. And, I mean, in terms of um, goal saves above expectations, he, he's been leading the league too. So that's another uh, fancy stat where he's, uh, he's really, uh, you know, He's actually, Making a he's, name actually, for himself. he's actually sixth right there, according to Evolving Hockey. Okay. But but okay. still, very yeah. good. Very good. You know yeah. who's you know who's fourth? Jonas Johansson. <laughs> ah from Tampa <laughs> Bay. Yes. Yeah. The guy that the guy that could not handle we, the load and and would provoke the arrival of Kevin Primo in Tampa any second now. Yes, yeah, that guy. Exactly. That that yeah. guy. That's through seven games. That's a, that's a large sample, and he's yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, which it, it is a counting stat. It accumulates over games. It's not a it's not a rate right. stat, but yeah. But still, Jake Allen is six, and actually the goalie he's likely. Well, we don't know if he's going to play tonight, but anyhow, he's he's six, just behind Jake Ottinger, and that's only in four games. Each of them have only played four games, and they're they're fifth and sixth in the league. And so, talking about. Uh... Jake Allen, we have a hockey fan or a Habs fan, 12-12-12-12 on our Twitter account, Basu and Godin. That's the Twitter handle. Uh, he was asking us, I can't help but wonder what Kent Hughes knows about the goalie market that we don't regarding Primo. Jake Allen playing lights out last night in front of 25 scouts adds fuel to the fire. So uh, well, you have opinions if, <laughs> on the scouts hockey fan, in attendance. Well, yes, I do. But if hockey fan 12-12-12... Ken Hughes is right there on the bench right now with Jeff Gordon yes. and someone that we don't know. If you want, we could scream it out. You want me to scream out? What do you know about the goalie market that we don't know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't do that. But no. the, but Ken Hughes is convinced that, that Caden Primo will not make it through waivers. This is obvious because we didn't think, I didn't think, you didn't think that they would be arriving in Vegas with Caden Primo with them. And here mm. they are. They're in Vegas, and Caden Primo is still with the team. So uh, there is a reality about the goalie market in that in that it's it's not very robust. You're not going to get a whole lot for a goalie like Caden Primo. Um, you know, Devon Levy Levi was was a throw-in on a, on a deal, kind of almost. You know, not really, no. but still was a little bit. He wasn't no. the primary. Listen, Florida. I mean. In order to make that deal happen, they had to put in Devon Levi, and they weren't going to let that scuttle the deal, right? Um, it's not it's not common. 
for you to get a whole lot for a young goalie who hasn't proven anything in the NHL because the re- so that being the case, uh, if you're not going to get a whole lot for Primo and you think you're going to lose him on waivers, which again is debatable, Kent knows a whole lot more than I do for sure, but um, you know there is a sense that. Caden Primo's value is tied to just the variability of that position. Unless you have an elite goaltender, which of which there are maybe four or five in the league, uh, the belief in hockey circles is that you have uh, the next tier is a very wide range of performances, and your your goalie, no matter where he finds himself in that tier has the potential in any given year to be at the top of that tier, just like he has the potential in any given year to be at the bottom of that tier. Yeah. And you're going to have to, you have to roll the dice to some extent every year. And there's no reason for anyone to believe, at least in, in my opinion, is it that Caden Primo is any better than any option just about any team has to be the backup goalie. In the NHL, so but but, how, but again, okay. But Jenkins, uh, how Jenkins about does know things that we don't know? But how about Jake Allen? Could he be? Could he be the the guy that the Canadians choose to trade away instead of Primo if they want to hold on to a goal, a, a, a a young goalie? I mean, uh, they they could. Why wouldn't they uh, move some salary and and trade Allen instead? He's Because got no one, one wants that salary. Skill. No one wants that salary. Mm-hmm. That's the reality of it because Jake Allen's in that tier and because you don't know where Jake Allen's going to find himself in that tier. I mean, that's the thing is that you're paying. So then you're going to decide. So then you're going to pay a guy three and a half million bucks to do something that to do something where you're getting just about the same assurance of performance that you would get from a goaltender who makes like 800,000. And so I don't think anyone's going to touch. Like it's not a bad contract. I'm not saying that, but There's no certainty with Jake Allen. You're not. You're not getting any. No. And, uh, so there's never been any. I mean, exactly. You know, throughout so his career, you, he's always been up and down. Yeah. So why would you pay that salary to someone if you're a contender? If you're the Canadians, it makes perfect sense. Bridge goalie gets you to a place where hopefully you have uh, a prospect. Ex- please, ex- please excuse the ambient noise in T-Mobile Arena. What is that? Um, I don't know what that was, but. Um, <laughs> Annoying you're not going to get, um, you know, you're not getting any assurance of performance out of that money, and so I, I plus for another year for the for the tender that makes no sense for the Canadians it makes perfect sense, so I, I would be, I would be stunned if yeah. if the Canes a were able to find someone who wanted Jake Allen and b were even willing to trade him. Like I think what Jake Allen represents to the Canadians is much more valuable than what he would represent to. A potential playoff contender. So we've uh, so we're in a, we're in an episode where we we dig deep in the numbers, and you were mentioning about the variability of the goalies uh, from one year to the next. Just below that elite tier, uh, you've got so you've got a broad range of guys that can have good seasons, bad seasons, mm-hmm. and so far it's a small sample. But let's if we take the goalies that played at least five games, uh, the yeah. top two guys for in terms of safe percentage against high danger shots. So the ones who really 
you know, step up when, when it's, the time is dire. Uh, first one is Thatcher Demko, who's, yeah. so who hasn't given up a goal in a high-danger situation, who, ha- who struggled mightily last year. So he's batting 1,000. Yeah. And Jacob Markstrom with Calgary at 913. So that's, that's five on five numbers. But those two guys are good examples of goalies that were, that the team relied on heavily. They paid them good money and they had bad seasons last year, but they seem to be rebounding. And if, you know, for a, a guy like, uh, uh, like Markstrom is probably, is certainly not to blame for, uh, for the Calgary Flames misuse so far this season. But that, that goes to show there's a lot of fluctuation from one year to the next. Uh, I see that Sam Montembeau, even though he's, play, he's played so far only three games, uh, you know, he sits well at 9.23. Montembeau's always been a good five-on-five goalie, at least since he's been to Montreal. Uh, the PK has been more of a problem for him. But yeah. I agree. I mean, this is a... this. Uh, I wonder how long this three-goalie situation is going to last. But... I think that when you have three goalies and you you enable each of them to stay fresh, it helps a guy like Jake Allen, who when he's been overworked, when his uh, when his body's been asked uh, too much of, that's when he either he gets hurt or he stops being effective. But if he's fighting, you know, with for playing time with Montembeau and with Primo, and he's he's kept at a like a a Goldilocks zone <laughs> in terms of playing yeah. time. That's probably the best way to get you know some good hockey out of him. And Montembeau on his side, if he if he's not the number one guy and he's you know he's he's a one B type of dynamic right now. Well, each occasion that he has, he needs to step up and make sure that he makes the most out of it because he's in a contract year and he's he's mm-hmm. eager to prove that he can be more than what he's been so far. So. The the balance. I mean, in all of this, nobody nobody really wins because they they would probably want to play more. All of them. Uh, I think that Primo certainly is hurt by this situation, but for the yeah. Canadians, both Allen and Montembeau, in their eyes, must be getting something out of this in terms of motivation and maximum effectiveness. Now, how long is that going to last? We don't know, but they've been serving their ass in October. Yeah. One interesting, two interesting things. First of all, uh, the impact of this, of the, of the Primo situation in Laval. So, you know, the Rocket have been kind of riding Strauss Mann a lot. Yeah. Uh, because they, they want to make sure that Dobesh is ready to play when he's playing. So this was obviously the plan was to give Primo the lion's share of the games early on and then work Dobesh in over the course of the season, except now it's Strassman. So they're sitting there waiting for him. That's point one. Point two is Jake Allen, almost every single time he speaks to the media, brings up the three goalie situation. It comes, he brings it up himself. It's, it's really something that he mentions on his own without even being asked. So it's clearly something that's, it's unusual, obviously, but it's clearly something that bothers him. Um, well, maybe not. Maybe bothers a strong word, but it's something that he uh, continuously brings up without being asked. So it's yeah. it's a situation that's unusual, and it's clearly a situation that he, you know, doesn't feel entirely comfortable with. No. At well, least in that's terms, my take on it. 
You're right, Diane. He brings that up very often. Yeah, he does. He does. Almost every time he speaks. <laughs> well, in the three goalie system, you know, oh, the three goalie. Yeah, it's not ideal. It's different. It's, not, it's, not ide- it's tough to get your reps. This, uh, that. So not yeah. only is Primo, not only is it not ideal for Primo, it's seemingly not ideal for Jake Allen either. So we'll seems see. to work though so far. Yeah, seems to work. Speaking of which, uh, one of the goalies just came out for the, to get his uh, workout in. Who is that? Anyhow, I don't know. He's turning his back on us. I'm not sure. Yeah. About. Okay. All right, next question. All right, next question comes from Brendan Graham from Ottawa, uh, who sent us an email uh, about Uri Slavkovsky. So here he goes. Arpin wrote an article about how Joshua Roy is likely to overcook in Laval. Is that the term you used? Uh, I I use that. Yeah, okay, which I assume applies to other young players like Heineman, Norlinder, Farrell, etc., Same logic applied to Kovacevic while he was in Manitoba. Promote them once to the NHL instead of up and down. Why is this logic not applied to Slav? I know Coach Marty is the only voice Slav hears in Montreal, but wouldn't he be better suited in Laval playing 20 minutes a night on the top line? He could, get, he could gel with young guys as well. A stint in Laval helped Caulfield. I'm sure it could help Slav as well. Interested to hear both of your opinions on this topic. Well, thanks for your question, Brendan. Uh, I remember because this is this seems to be Jesperi Katyanemi debate all over again, and yeah. I remember that back in the day. I know that there are differences, but I, I, back in the day, I was fiercely against sending Katyanemi down, and I'm starting to wonder regarding Slavkovsky uh, if just for in terms of confidence, in terms of uh, you know. Martin Saint Louis likes to talk about puck touches. If he was to go play in Laval on the top line, he would get a ton of puck touches. Probably find the, the back of the net more often too. Uh, but and I, I, I'm more and more which each day passing with the last two games that he's played, I'm starting to wonder if that would not be the best course of action. But there are two things at play here. The first one is I think that there's a there's an element of pride that it would it would look even though that's not the case the Montreal Canadiens might feel as though it would it would look like a step back and an admission maybe of you know have we bet be on the right back. horse it would be a was step that back. that's it would be a step back there's no there's no there's no appearance of a step back it would literally be a step to a lower league yes i know but you, yeah. ultimately it has to be what's best for the player so absolutely and yeah, if so- And if the end result is what the player is going to look like when he's 22, 23, well, what's the best course of action to make sure he's, he's, he's going to be there? Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, because you see, for example, I was in uh, L.A. two nights ago. I wrote something about Dominique Ducharme, and uh, I saw Quentin Byfield over there. And Quentin Byfield was a number two pick overall by the L.A. Kings. Uh, and he, he made... You know, the, he was up and down with the interior reign. And now he's playing um, he was, he's playing wing on the top line uh, alongside Kopitar and Kempe. Uh, he's being asked to be like this, this F1 guy who's going to make room for the other two guys. Uh, and in all, it's unlikely at this point that By, uh, Byfield is going to be a star, but he can still become this maybe this 50-point-per-season guy. Is it worthy of being a second pick overall? Probably not. But w- uh, 
once they've made that choice, they have to own it and make sure that they develop the player the best they can. And the Canadians could decide to do the same. And so that's one factor. And the other one uh, is probably how it would be perceived and received by the fan base who would now, you know, look at how Slavkovsky performs in Laval. And if by any chance things don't go perfectly well for Slavkovsky and Laval, well, then all hell would break loose. So it's, yeah. a, it's a tough situation for the team to put the kid in. Yeah, I would also push back on, on Laval helping Caulfield. I mean, yes, him starting in Laval helped him. Uh, but the send, when he was sent down and brought back up, I mean, what really helped him was Marty St. Louis' arrival, and, and that was really the, the turning yes. point for Caulfield. It wasn't him yeah. being sent to Laval. Um, in my opinion. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, and he played is, six is, games in Laval. Yeah. That year. Exactly. Yeah. But that's fine. I mean, maybe, maybe Slav could go play six games in Laval. I think there's, there's merit to it. Even despite what I just said about Caulfield, there is merit to going down. Um, even Kakayemi went down to Laval at one point. Um, when you're, when you're bringing up the, the same, the comparison, you know, and so it's, yeah, it's, there, there is probably merit to it. There is some nurturing of uh, of of a player's self esteem or self worth or or just how he views himself. Like it's difficult. Ken, Ken Hughes has talked about this a lot, where he's had clients where they made the NHL and then they get sent down to the AHL. And even if the, all the messaging, you can do all the messaging you want, but that client is going to feel that client did feel, according to Kent. Uh, like he had failed in some in some way, and there was some massaging that had to be done by him as his agent, uh, by the team. It was it was not as simple as saying, "Listen, we think you need to go do some work. Go down to Laval. You're going to get lots of ice time. It's going to be a positive thing for you. Go down there and 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 rip it up and own and and just and dominate. You know, and then when you're ready, we'll bring you right back up. Yeah, it's not that simple. There's a lot to it that um, a young player takes and and i was talking to slavkoski the other day uh after the columbus game so that was on friday after practice and i thought that columbus game was you know was not terrible but it was his most difficult game of the season yeah. leading up to that point he he followed that up on saturday with an even more difficult game but um so i asked him i was like you know that was that was kind of a tough one for you last night i huh? was like ah after Columbus, yeah. not after Winnipeg. After Columbus, yeah, no, I, yeah. I haven't spoken to him since Winnipeg, but and he kind of like he wasn't fully, he didn't fully agree, and didn't particularly like that I thought that, um, which is fine. That's that's his that's his right, but he's 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 a guy who's pretty hard on himself generally, and so you know even games where he's good, he'll say that he was bad. So the fact that he didn't really see it that way. I think is a window into where his confidence is at right now. Like it's not, you know, so, something I saw and I, I'll admit, like I have, uh, I have sort of a, a bent to, to kind of err on the side of, uh, how, how should I say this? But basically, sorry that the noise you're hearing is, is Eric Raymond warming up. Who is that? My uh, my eyesight is not good enough yeah. to identify. Sorry, so we can't give you we can't give you well, it won't even be a scoop by the time this podcast gets in. So whatever, but 
I have I have a tendency to to give Slav the benefit of the doubt in the sense that he's a young player. Expectations should be tempered because he's not a superstar level number one overall pick. He's no one expected him to become, uh, a, 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 you know, a, a generational or a franchise altering talent. Uh, and so that's why if even I saw the game being as, as something that was not him at his best and he kind of disagreed, which was unusual for him, that's a good sign Mm. in my eyes. You know, his confidence is at a decent place, you know, even though maybe you could argue that his self-awareness needs to be better, but it's, uh, I would I would argue the opposite that he needs to be less hard on himself and less self critical and less and just go out and play and so that was a sign that he's maybe doing that. Okay, so the fact that the Montreal Canadiens are five two and one after eight games, they're off to a strong start, and the fact also that the team is not expecting expected to do anything amazing this season and it's more of it's it's still a development year for that team. Does it change anything to the agenda with Slavkovsky and the fact that they can allow themselves to be even more patient with him, whether that involves a trip to Laval or not, because patience can be either, you know what, wherever he plays, we'll develop him and in due time, he'll be like the best version of himself, whether he plays in Laval or in Montreal, or patience can only be, you know what, he's going to stay in the lineup and slowly but surely he'll figure things out. He'll take whatever time it takes But we don't need him right now to be the guy that we project him to be eventually. So does the, the team situation in your eyes and the position that they're in right now has any bearing on, on how he should manage his, his, his situation? Uh, well, yes, in the sense that they, they, can, they can live with his mistakes, right? So. Yeah. They don't need him to, like the situation that Alex Newhook was in, for instance, in Colorado, which was, which was not uh, beneficial to his development as a player, where he, he was working in an environment or growing in an environment where mistakes were tolerated. And so Slavkovsky's mistakes will be tolerated by the coach, by management, by everyone, in the hopes that from here, two years from now, He is a highly effective, very unique talent in the NHL. But I think the point you made earlier bears repeating when discussing this is when, you know, at a certain point, Martin St. Louis, and it's not now, but at some point, he's not going to be able to evaluate your Slavkovsky based solely on, solely on touches. Um, it's great that he's touching the puck, but when you're sitting, you know, entering the Vegas game Monday night, when you got one assist this season – same as Josh Anderson, but still just one assist in eight games. Uh, that's as a player, you're going to look at that and be like, ah, you know, Oh yes. I'm so happy. I got 15 puck touches in this game. No, the player is going to look at that one assist and be like, no, I need to be better. Um, so, you know, there, there's something to the notion that he would get those puck touches in Laval, as you mentioned earlier. Like, I think that's a really good point. Like if you're going to focus on puck touches, then that's, that's another reason to send him to Laval. He'll touch the puck a lot more. He'll be, it's, it's hard to say he'll get much more ice time because it's not as if he's playing in a, in a sheltered role now. 
he's on the second line of the team. The team that the line plays a lot. The, the the team needs that line to succeed, and and so it's not really. Uh, I don't think it's a role thing. It's just that he's going to have a chance to go down there and and touch the puck more. But the the one thing when I was at Laval Rocket practice last week, I was I was asking Ula a question, and I said, you know, I think a lot of people don't understand how the the physical element of the American Hockey League and how different that is. And I was continuing my question, and Ula didn't even wait for me. He's like, no, they don't. Right in the middle of my question. Like, no, they don't understand that. So I think people do need to understand that when you're number one overall pick arriving in the American Hockey League, you're going to have a target on your back. And there's a lot of career AHLers who are going to try and prove a point with you. And so that's another element that you don't necessarily have in the NHL that you do get in the AHL. And that's, and so how would that benefit? Would that benefit him? Would it hinder him? That's another part of the equation that I think a lot of people don't necessarily take into account. So on, uh, at the end of this road trip, in all likelihood, Christian Dvorak is going to come back, uh, which November I was, 4th. We're almost November there. 4th, so, exactly. And, uh, it's, it's going to have a trickle. It's going to have a trickle effect on, on the lineup. I would expect that Sean Monahan will be, will be put with Suzuki and Caulfield because neither mm-hmm. Anderson or Arvid Pinard for that matter have really proven to be the answer in that position. So yeah. having, if, if they put Monahan on the top line and with Dvorak centering the third line, it's going to have a trickle down effect for the other wingers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it could affect guys like Josh Anderson and Uri Slavkovsky too. So how do you see that? I mean, barring any other injury, uh, how do you see that affecting Those two guys in particular, Slavkovsky and Anderson. Well, it's, it has a trickle-down effect right down the lineup. Right? But the, for those two guys, I have the impression late in the game against the Jets, uh, Marty put Josh Anderson back up with Suzuki and Caulfield uh, and put Harvey Pinard down with Newhook and Slav. Mm-hmm. My impression, and I could be wrong, My impression is that Marty wants to maintain, wants to give Slaff the stability of having Newhook as a center. He, what, originally, it was going to be Doc. Obviously, Doc is gone. So now he wants to establish that stability with Newhook. Uh, I do believe that Marty looks back at, at Slaff's rookie season and how he managed it and would like a do-over or two, uh, one of which being how much he bounced up and down the lineup. So yeah. So I would think that the new hook Slavkovsky thing would stay. Now whether Harvey Pinard goes on that line or Anderson stays there, uh, that's up for debate. I don't know. I don't know which one would be, but it's it's it definitely would strengthen everything because what's interesting to me is what do you do with Brendan Gallagher? Let's say yeah. Josh Anderson goes down to the third line. Or let's say Harvey Pinard goes down to the third line. He could even go down to the fourth line. But what do you do with Brendan Gallagher? Because Gallagher's playing good hockey, but it's uh, I, I, I continue to maintain and believe that he would be best served playing with Jake Evans, even though he's been good. But 
because playing with Christian Dvorak is not the same thing as playing with Sean Monahan. So I don't know what kind of impact that's going to have on Gallagher's game. We've seen him play with Evans. We've seen him succeed. If they just get past the fact that it's considered the fourth line, quote unquote, um, I think that would be interesting to try Anderson or Harvey Pinard on that line with Pearson and Dvorak. Yeah. And, and move Gallagher. Yeah, because Dvorak and Gallagher, that's, that has not worked in the past. It has not worked. It will not work. It's a non-starter. So yeah. um, the, the thing with Harvey Pinard is that, as we saw at the start of the season, Marty would have no issue putting him on the fourth line, whereas with Josh Anderson, I think that would be a bit of a more difficult decision to make. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, it's going to be an interesting turn of events. Uh when and if that happens. Speaking November of depth. 4th, baby. It's coming. Yeah. It's coming. Speaking November of 4th. depth players, uh, we've got Nicolas Cote, who's asking us, do you believe that Armia took Ulonen's place in the lineup because of his performance on the ice or simply by the fact that his minutes on PK can be added to Armia's playing time? And uh, so Marty was, was asked that question on Sunday. And... Uh, It's interesting because he said, you know what, Pizzetta seems like always the given choice, the, the, the automatic guy that we would take out of the lineup in any given circumstances. He's an easy, it's an easy solution, but he says, I don't want to go to the easy solution. I want to make the right decision. Mm-hmm. So, and I think it's recognizing also what Pizzetta brings, the fact that he's, uh, he's not just a guy who's dropping the mitts. He's also, I find that You know, there, there, are, there are times he's, just like any other lines, he's been cratered in his own end from time to time, but he's been spending, along with, uh, with Evans, a decent amount of time in the offensive zone, applying pressure, just wasting for the opponents uh, some, some precious time and just being stuck in their own end. He's been effective in that part of the game, so I, I, I would understand why uh, Marty makes that choice. But there's also the fact that he said... I needed to find, I needed to put Armia in the lineup. So mm-hmm. at some point, it, it, you, you call up the guy who was clearly too good for the AHL. He's not an AHL player, but mm-hmm. he wanted to find a way to uh, insert him in the lineup. But it's strange because Ulanen was not playing bad hockey either. He yeah. was not necessarily worthy of being you know, taken, taken off the lineup. <clears throat> no, exactly. And so that's why it was, it was, it was a tricky thing for Marty to do. Um, and, and, but his explanation was interesting. Listen, Marty spent a lot of time with Michael Pizzetta after morning skates last season. Uh, Marty likes to stay on with the scratches. He did last season, actually. He doesn't as much this year. Uh, but last season, he did this a lot, where whoever was scratched from the game, he would spend 20, 30 minutes after the morning skate working with those players. And it was often Michael Pizzetta. And I remember once in, uh, in Long Island, he was on the ice with Mike Matheson and Mike Hoffman and Michael Pizzetta. All three Michaels, but very <laughs> different players, you know. And, and Hoffman did something. They were doing a drill. It had to do with uh, uh, sort of uh, making a move at the blue line and finding a lane and, and getting a shot off. And uh, Mike Hoffman did something, and Marty said, Pez, did you see what Hoff just did? You know, you could do that. Get, get that little hesitation in or whatever. I forget what the exact move was, but he told 
Pizzetta to do something that Mike Hoffman was doing. And Pizzetta went out and did it. (laughs) (laughs) Man, he's not even here to defend himself. Anyhow. um, Um, Nobody's here to defend himself. Yeah, that's exactly. So he, uh, and then he went out and did it. And so I just picture in my mind, like, how often Marty's had those situations with Michael Pizzetta in the sense that, uh, you know, he, uh, you know, him doing things that other more skilled players are doing and having Marty encourage him to do those things. So they have an interesting relationship. And so that's why I thought his answer was interesting because Lonin, yes, uh, was playing not only penalty kill, was on the top penalty killing unit, uh, which is something Armia obviously does very well and would be fine yeah. doing. Um, more than fine, actually. It's probably an upgrade on Yulonin, as well as Yulonin has, has played in that role. He's never done it before, and, and, and he, you know, I think Marty was, was sort of looking out for Pizzetta's self-esteem and self-worth in that decision. Yolonen's uh, self-esteem and self-worth from the decision to have him on the penalty kill to begin with, which is something he never did in Laval. He never did it in Finland. He's never done it in his life. He's always been a power play guy. And he himself felt that, nice, we're getting, I'm getting a role and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that the coaching staff sees me as a potential guy here. So yeah. there's a lot of massaging that has to be done. And, and as we just mentioned, when Dvorak is back, that trickle-down effect is going to affect these guys the most. These are the guys who are going to either be in the lineup or out. And these, these decisions, Marty's going to have to manage this on a more regular basis as of, well, as of November 4th. <laughs> so let's see, uh, let's see how he does. But I think his reasoning on Pizzetta is, is a window into how he's going to try and sort of maintain um, this with all of his players. Yeah. All right, let's wrap this up with one question uh, from Louis Grandman, who actually sent us two questions, but uh, we're going we're gonna to keep the second one. Um, so Louis is uh, curious about the future of Sean Monahan. He's, uh, he writes, he is an incredible player and in finding versatile top nine forwards that are 28, year old, 28 years old is, not easy, is no easy feat. Given the fact that Monahan is the type of player you win with and the Canadian's window is on the way to opening, Would your vote be with signing Monaghan or trading him at the deadline? Well, that's a yeah, very it, interesting question. It's a very interesting question. I, I agree. Because it's, it, it, it's not a given. I mean, the, it's, usually teams will say, well, the guy is at the end of, the con, uh, of his contract. Um, might as well get an asset for him because we're not making the playoffs. So... You know, you could always try to trade him and say, if you liked it, you could come back in the summer. We've, we've suggested that scenario over the years with multiple players. The reality is it happens it almost, very, very seldomly. Almost never happens. Yeah. Almost never. Yeah. So, but when you look at the, the impact that he's got on this team, he, he's probably been their best, most consistent skater since the beginning of the season. And it's not, it's not just... Um, his help on the power play or his help on the face-off circle where he's been absolutely tremendous. But it's how smart he is on the ice, uh, holding on to the puck, slowing down the play sometimes, making always the right reads, uh, adjusting 
the pace of the game so that it opens up and he makes the right play after that. He's a, he's a very, very smart player, uh, a beloved player in this locker room too. So um, yeah. obviously, I mean, if, if he remains healthy, uh, there's, there's going to be high demand for a player like this. And as much as he fits with the Canadians, I wonder if Kent Hughes is not going to say, you know what? There was a time where I was in a position to trade Joel Edmondson and I decided to hold on to the player and eventually, well, he, you know, he fell into pieces. Mm-hmm. If there's a guy who's a, who's a, who's a health risk, I wouldn't call it a time bomb, but there's, there, there's a, there will forever be a health risk when it comes to uh, Sean Monaghan. I suppose that the Canadians might say, you know what, it might be the safer play to go get something valuable in return for his guy instead of committing ourselves to a two, three, maybe four-year contract uh, with a guy who, even though he's only 28 years old, uh, his body has... He just turned 29. Yeah, he's 29, you're right. But he's yeah, still... Yeah, he's 29. But he's not yes. 30. It should be added he on the everyone... build, the big billboard. Yeah. Not 30 yeah, he yet. Wants, he wants everyone to know that. Yeah. But, yeah. The, the, I mean... It, it, We, we've seen it with, with Brendan Gallagher, though. It's, it comes a time where when you have a, you know, yeah. hockey has put a big toll on your body and you're on the eve of your, your 30s, signing a long-term contract is a risky play. So especially you, you quit especially while you're ahead, basically. Especially if there's a first-round pick possibility. You know, I mean, we were talking about November 4th. If Sean Monaghan goes up on the top line with Suzuki and Caulfield and starts producing at a high, very high level, uh, or a high level, I should say, uh, it's it's a bit of a catch-22. On one hand, you have a guy filling a spot in your roster that's going to exist for the next seven years where no one else has been able to really do that effectively to complete those two players. So your thought should be, why wouldn't we keep that guy? But if he goes on that spot and starts producing and a team is willing to offer a first-round pick or multiple picks or whatever whatever his market value winds up being at the deadline, it's hard to say no to that. But the added layer to that is that at some point soon, the Canadians are going to start looking at their draft picks and be like, how many do we really need? Yeah. How many draft picks do we need? How many prospects do we need? Yes, they need some high-end prospects, uh, some high-ceiling guys, but you're not getting a high-ceiling guy with the first-round pick that you're acquiring for Sean Monaghan. You're probably getting a pick in the 20s, if not the late 20s, if not the 30s for him. So at some point, they're going to need to make that switch and, 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 and make decisions like, the, like this question, where you have a guy who still has some runway left, would still help you in a competitive window, But my thought would be that Sean Monaghan is probably not going to be helping this team when it reaches its competitive window. Yeah. So you cash this chip, but it's a very valid question as far as what you do with future guys in that situation. And we can see Josh Anderson's going to be in that situation very soon. You know, I mean, there's, there's going to be guys who, who reach a certain age uh, that – might line up better with the Canadians' competitive window uh, and where they're going to have to make decisions like this. You know, yeah. when Josh Anderson's contract runs out, 
in a few years, let's say the Canadians are competitive at that point, what do they do with him? If he's an important part of the competitive team at $5.5 million, which at that point will be probably not a very significant salary at that point, what do they do with him? So these questions are coming, but I think with Monaghan, the windows just don't really fit quite, quite that well. No, and you're right that the Canadians have a lot of picks and they have, they have too many of them, but I fully expect the Canadians to use some of those picks to acquire a quality player in the offseason. I oh, mean, 100%. 100%. Yeah, Ken Hughes said, he told me just before the season started, he said, you know, there's, I could trade a first-round pick, a second-round pick, a third-round pick, and a fourth-round pick in 2025 in order to acquire a good player. And I would still have a first, a second, a third, and a fourth. So yeah. that's how that's loaded they are with picks for what's yeah. meant to be a much better, a, 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 a very decent draft. So we'll see. But Monaghan adding to that, it would just give them more ammos to go out on the market and you know and and be ready to strike. And but they definitely they definitely need to guard against. Uh, evaluating Monaghan right now. Yeah, because he's at the same spot as he was last season. By this, at this time well, last year, that, he was healthy he and to, producing. But, he, but even if he makes, even if he remains healthy and producing through the deadline, what I mean is right now, like this year, they need to okay. guard against evaluating Sean Monaghan this season, and they need to evaluate what Sean Monaghan will be two to three seasons from now if they sign him to a four or five year deal. And that's the benefit of keeping Sean Monaghan in the short term versus the, the potential pitfalls of having him around two or three years from now. I think they don't line up really. All right. So the Canadians uh, have started their morning skate. Which that's is it. Everybody can hear that. Yeah. 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 So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna shut this down and go watch what happens at this skate. But, um, but we'll be back on Friday. Uh, I will be in St. Louis. Are you going to St. Louis? I didn't ask you that. No, actually, I'm not. We'll have to yeah. uh, be. Uh, we'll have to be clever with the way we record this podcast on Friday. Yeah, it's a TBD. Well, Friday will be interesting. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Well, we'll, <laughs> it's what's not TBD is that we will have a podcast on Friday, but we need to figure out the logistics of it. But I'll be in St. Louis. Mark Antoine will be back in Montreal, and so we will uh, talk to you then from two different time zones. All right, everybody, have a good day. Enjoy your enjoy the whole week. Bye bye, bye, Arpin.